Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, is it time for Leveson 2, an investigation into the links between the media, the police and politicians? It's a question prompted by revelations that The Sun's deputy editor, James Slack, attended one of the parties at Downing Street during lockdown that have taken Boris Johnson's reign as Prime Minister to the brink. Slack, who was once Johnson's head of communications, has since apologised. But his presence at a potentially illegal party held in his honour at the PM's official residence begs questions about the cosy relationship between ministers and those who are supposed to be holding them to account in the press. Then there's the question of the Metropolitan Police and their unwillingness to investigate allegations of Covid rule-breaking in Whitehall, at least until stories about the Prime Minister's birthday party and what's become known as Cakegate made it impossible to avoid taking action. Before we get cracking though, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't financed by wealthy backers or corporations or offshore hedge funds. We rely for income entirely on people like you, taking out subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, or the equally excellent digital edition. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, in 2012, after a series of scandals around phone hacking, High Court Judge Sir Brian Leveson concluded an official report into the ethics of the British media by calling for the creation of a government-backed press watchdog, the previous voluntary one having proved to be so toothless. The then Prime Minister David Cameron praised Leveson's findings, but declined to adopt this key recommendation – which would have meant, of course, antagonising the Daily Mail and Rupert Murdoch's stable of papers. Plans for Leveson 2, an inquiry into links between journalists, politicians and the police, had to be shelved because of ongoing court cases, but was then scrapped altogether. Have recent events demonstrated precisely, though, why it should have gone ahead? Let's get more now from Alistair Morgan, brother of private investigator Daniel Morgan, whose unsolved murder in 1987 was, according to an independent report, hampered by institutional corruption at the Met. We'll also hear from Cathy O'Donnell, former night editor of The Times in Scotland. And first, Byline Times executive editor Peter Jukes. Why does he think we need Leveson too? Well, Alistair will explain 35 years of the history of collusion between senior Met officers and senior figures, particularly at News International as it was then, now News UK, Murdoch's press stable. But it's a wider phenomenon. I mean, you've got to notice that several senior members of the press quickly become number 10 spokesmen like Slack and then revolve back to the press. And so at the highest echelons of government, we have a government political media class. A lot of them come from the spectator. I'm not citing individuals, but Allegra Stratton is married to the spectator's chief political correspondent. We know from the BBC, Sir Robbie Gibb, Andrew Neal's producer at BBC Westminster and the Daily Politics and the Sunday Politics went to become Theresa May's chief communications officer. And there is a cartel 
of journalists come politicians who take public money and then, if you like, non-dom oligarch money, and how, even if they're the best reporters in the world, if their partner or their fiancé or their godparent to Boris Johnson's child, how can they report on politicians objectively, fairly, for the public interest, when their private interests, their friendships, their quite lucrative jobs, rely on them keeping stum. And many people would say that the recent Partygate incidents have sharpened their appetite for Leveson too. The Metropolitan Police seemed remarkably reluctant to investigate, even though there was prima facie evidence of illegal or apparently illegal activity. Now, they did eventually backtrack on that, but very belatedly. And we know that one of the parties was attended by James Slack, deputy editor of The Sun. So from the outside, it looked to many people as though politicians, the police and the press were in cahoots. Yeah, and it's such a shame that Leveson 2 was cancelled by Theresa May in the run-up to the 2017 general election, obviously as a deal for support from people like the Mail and the Telegraph and the Murdoch stable. So what this reveals is, as Alistair's journey really has done over 35 years, a constitutional dysfunction in the British state, particularly, of course, around the press. You know, Boris Johnson was trained, paid for by the Telegraph. So was Michael Gove. They are punditocrats, if there's such a word. But also that the Met is a weird organisation. It's supposed to be, for the people of London, regulated by the mayor in some ways, but it's also a national force which is beholden to the Home Office. And so you do have this absurd position where Sue Gray is talking to the police outside Number 10 about these parties. Meanwhile, she reports to the Prime Minister, who can do what he likes with her report. It is just another example that our constitution relies on good chaps, our written constitution, which kind of depends on good behaviour. So when somebody doesn't mind the guidelines, walk straight through them like Boris Johnson. And I'd say, you know, a lot of press oligarchs have. We are in great danger. We have no powers and they have no accountability. And Peter's alluded to this a couple of times already, Alistair. For, for people who don't know the story of the incestuous relationship between the Murdoch papers and indeed other newspapers and the Metropolitan Police and its connection to the murder of your brother Daniel. Just take us through some of the lowlights of that relationship. (laughs) Well, Daniel was murdered in March 1987, nearly 35 years ago. And very quickly after the murder, his position in the company was taken over by one of the police officers on the murder squad. And very soon after this, it emerged that Jonathan Rees, my brother's partner, also a suspect in the murder, and Sidney Fillory, the police officer who'd taken over my brother's place in the company, uh, had developed deep links with some of the national tabloids, for example, the Mirror Group, and in particular, News of the World, and they were illegally obtaining information through a wide network of illegal sources for 
the News of the World and Mirror Group. This went on for many, many years, and they had close links with the convicted criminal Mazama Mood and Andy Coulson. Again, this is a reflection, almost like a mirror image of the Slack case. Andy Coulson was David Cameron's press secretary, and he was dealing directly with these criminals in Southern Investigation. And again, a horrible incestuous link there. And then it went on in the later investigation where journalists from the News of the World tried to interfere with one of the investigations by putting uh, David Cook and the investigating officer and his wife, Jackie Haynes, under surveillance while the investigation was going on. And again, no investigation into it. Lord Stevens told the Leveson inquiry that he didn't know anything about this surveillance. And it's just an awful, awful incestuous mess with the police, the press and politicians all involved in one way or another, either through negligence or actual nefarious activity. And of course, we should make clear that both Jonathan Rees and Sid Fillory were not found guilty of any connection with Daniel's murder. In terms of where we are now, though, and clearly there was a, a shocking systemic failure, an independent inquiry into Daniel's murder and the investigations into his death uncovered systemic failures. Do you think any of this is still relevant today, given how many years ago he was murdered? Well, it is because the police, in the words of Nula alone, who chaired the panel, were they were institutionally corrupt. In a case where there were multiple allegations of police involvement, it smells very bad even today. And the panel, because it did not have statutory powers, they couldn't subpoena witnesses, they couldn't subpoena documents, and this led to a an extraordinarily long and drawn-out process for my family. It took them over eight years, and Cressida Dick was accused in the panel report of obstructing the inquiry. It's just such an awful mess, the whole thing. There's a very, isn't there, Alistair, a very live example of continuing, if you like, collusive relationships, and that's Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, tried to delay the panel. Do you remember? I'm pressed. I do. Now, Priti Patel, as we know now, around the time she was trying to delay the panel till September, when it's due in June, we know she was one of two politicians who went to Rupert Murdoch's wedding to Jerry Hall, I think it's 2016, with her husband. The other one was Michael Gove, also writes a lot for Murdoch. Now, At that time, she was trying to delay the panel. We have court records that when there was an Extinction Rebellion protest outside Murdoch's print works in Bedfordshire, in the Bedfordshire area, Pity Patel was on the phone to the chief constable trying to sort it out for Murdoch. So, you know, that proximity has intensified. It hasn't gone away since the days of Coulson and David Cameron. And I was thinking the way that the panel report was received, the conclusions were flatly rejected by the Home Secretary and even worse, in my opinion, Sadiq Khan. It does make me feel somewhat pessimistic about 
Labour, if and when they hopefully do get into power, that they will actually do anything about it either. Because my own dealings with the Labour administration over many, many years, they just simply didn't want to know about Daniel's case, you know. So I'm a bit of a pessimist about this country, actually, I'm afraid, many, many years of dealing with it. But one has to keep on pushing. Cathy, let me ask you, as someone who has been, as it were, in the in the belly of the beast, as, as a former night editor on The Times, do you think we need a Leveson too? Oh, absolutely. I would say that without any hesitation whatsoever, that it was brought to a standstill and then scrapped, I think speaks volumes to where we are now. Peter, you were saying that little has changed since the, the time of Coulson. I think things have got a lot worse. Um, <laughs> we are living in the white heat of disinformation, something which 10 years ago would have seemed absurd or impossible almost to us now. And I think more than ever, we have an obligation to reform our press. We have to make sure that our journalists behave ethically. And at the heart of this unethical behaviour is this revolving door between politics and journalism, because what it does is it allows people to get into political power without any kind of accountability. Very interesting report almost a year ago now in Byline Times by my colleague Sam Bright, and he was revealing the meetings that had been held between Rupert Murdoch and senior figures in the government, both Murdoch and or Rebecca Brooks, his right-hand woman at News Corporation, his CEO, held seven private meetings with five senior ministers over a seven-week period in August and September 2020. The kind of access that ordinary voters could only dream of. It's the sort of access that the Conservative Party generally charges a lot of money for. But there is such a problem with this. You're right, there are logs kept of when Fleet Street journalists meet with senior politicians when they're in and out of Downing Street or and so forth. Those have been kept for years. And if you look back over them, there are huge numbers of contacts. And it would be very, very difficult to explain them as fundamentally journalistic. They are not. Journalists are one thing, of course, but Rupert Murdoch, the head man who famously insists that he never interferes. Laughable. I mean, I, Murdoch, for example, as I'm sure has been talked about by Byline before, has sat in on interviews, famously the Gove Trump interview, just after Trump was elected for the Times, and Murdoch sat there. Murdoch, of course, is forbidden to have any editorial input or influence on the Times, and yet he sat in on an interview with his pal, Donald Trump, with his pal, Michael Gove, supposedly without influence and without anything to say about it. I don't believe that for a moment. I think Times readers, for whom the interview was performed, were had by that. Peter, the press raised the fear of censorship after Leveson 1. Leveson 1 recommended the introduction of some kind of state-backed regulator because the previous voluntary press watchdog had manifestly failed to give any accountability to the papers. As a journalist, do you not 
fear yourself the idea of a, a state-backed regulator of the press? Does that not have sinister overtones? Thanks to people like Rupert Murdoch and Paul Dayton, that we are now confusing regulation, law, you know, guidelines, bylaws with state, with the state control. So, you know, state-backed seatbelts, state-backed traffic lights, it becomes everything's a threat from the state, the mere sort of ordinary regulation of life. And I think that's absurd. You know, in a way, they do the same with the BBC. They call it a state broadcaster and you work for them and you know it's not the same having something which is organised by law as the state. And I would point out, though that she later resiled from it, Rachel Johnson said the last visit of Rupert Murdoch to our Prime Minister, he was dandling his son on his knee <laughs> and saying, we must get rid of the BBC. That is libertarian nonsense, that anything, any law, law regulation is the state, is communism. And that's what they played, and they played it very successfully. The Leveson recommendations had a touch of state legislation, basically, the, to enable the recognizer of the independent regulator. I must admit that was the least important thing to me about Leveson 1 and Leveson 2. I was much more focused like Alistair, on exposure of this relationship between the police, the press, and politicians. I have, as a now a publisher, you know, I live-tweeted the phone hacking trial I was involved in covering Leveson 1, but as a publisher now, there are so many onerous elements in publication, especially with rich oligarchs threatening to sue you all the time. We've seen this in the court last week with Carol Cadwallader and a defamation trial against the EU funder Aaron Banks. I have my own reservations about the arbitral system that's proposed. My experience of it, it's clunky and actually it'd be easier to go to the court. But that's a tiny, tiny thing. I think that journalists, we should have proper self-regulation and that's ultimately not about, you know, complaints or anything like that. It's who are you answering to? We should not allow foreign owners, you know, you don't allow that in America. Rupert Murdoch is an American citizen because they won't allow a non-American to have a TV station. Meanwhile, here, GB News, mainly funded out of Dubai. Obviously, most of our big press barons are not resident in the UK for tax purposes. And so I think there are other things beyond fixating, which is like the greatest cure for insomnia. Talk to people about press regulation. And you can guarantee they'll fall asleep pretty quickly. There are other bigger things to me, especially around media ownership, which is slightly more urgent to sort out. People fall asleep around press regulation until uh, they're on the wrong end of it. And then they are very acutely aware of it. We have two systems Ipso and Impress, both voluntary, and of course, The Guardian and the FT and a few others regulating themselves. None of them appear to work perfectly. Impress certainly has a, a better record than, than Ipso, which, as I understand, it is yet to, to launch a single standards investigation or indeed fine any of its members. Press regulation in itself, as a journalist, I mean, it seems like anathema, but it really isn't. And there are plenty of countries that implement this successfully. I mean, if you look at the Reporter Sans Frontier annual press freedom index, you've got Finland, you've got Norway, you've got, I think, 32 other countries sitting up above the UK as 
sort of measurably more free in what their press is allowed to do, and they have press regulation, and it works. Completely agree with that, Cathy. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that how, and to me, you know, they'll always gain the system. If so clearly gains the system, it's a sham. While you have this big concentration of owners. Newspapers will try, and particularly proprietors will try and gain the system. I mean, you're right, that will most likely happen. The question is, implementing a system that allows complaints to be made and to be heard and to be acted on. Whether people are trying to gain that from the other side or not, well, that's push and pull. And you're right, that's going to happen. But at the moment, we have a situation where it's very difficult to have a complaint heard in the first place, uh, particularly with Ipso, and later on, it's almost impossible to get it upheld with any kind of bite or teeth behind it. And that's a position that opens the door to every kind of ethical and moral abuse in journalism. And it's a door that gets pushed open even wider with this nexus of connections between politicians, journalists, and of course, uh, law enforcement. And of course, in your case, Alistair, your complaint really was more complex than simply a complaint about what had been written about you or written about your brother, Daniel. It was about the connection between journalists who might write about the case and police officers who might investigate the case. Now, you could hardly go and complain to the press when some members <laughs> of the press were, were involved in, uh, at yeah. one point, apparently messing up the investigation, or to police officers who were at some level implicated in corrupt practices. I mean, <laughs> where does somebody like you go when there is this unholy nexus between the two? Exactly. And in my own life, when I saw that the actual police complaints process was rigged, as is obvious from the panel report, I actually trained to become a journalist. I was looking back on the old days when the Sunday Times opened up the thalidomide scandal and thinking that our fearless press would eventually expose the corruption that had been taking place. But then I was very, very naive at that point. I had no idea at all. It took me many, many years to actually even find out about the links between the suspects and the press. You know, it took 20 years before I actually realised what was going on, because there was so much being hidden from me by the police. And it wasn't until the Millie Dowler revelation, I think that was 10 years ago now, that the pieces began to fall together. It's an unholy mess, the whole thing. That's the conclusion that that I'm coming to from listening to the other participants here. And something's got to be done. The country is in this sort of awful grip, as I see it, of this nexus. And Leveson 2 really is the only hope that we've got. This government will never, ever call for Leveson 2, but we need a new government and we need Leveson 2. Cathy, Alistair there alludes to the courageous work done by journalists. And of course, the people who uncovered the thalidomide scandal were took a lot of risks to do so. And there are still courageous journalists operating in 
every news outlet pretty much up and down the country, including the Murdoch Press and including the Daily Mail, who've been name-checked in this podcast. But there's a, a bigger structural issue here, isn't there, in that there are only certain stories that you are allowed to cover or go big on. There are only certain times when you are allowed to criticise the Prime Minister or the way in which the country is run. It is not simply a free-for-all for bold journalists to make headline news. Well, I wish it was, Adrian. I wish it was a free-for-all for bold journalists to do that. Of course, there are, I would say, even the majority of people who work on papers that we may not politically agree with do excellent work. There are amazing foreign correspondents out there. There are fearless and fine crime reporters. There are people who get stuck into our legal system, all sorts. However, the problem with this is a problem that comes down from the top. When you have proprietors employ editors who will prioritise the proprietor's economic and political interests over the business of providing their readers with news, we have a problem. And that is exactly where we are now. If you look at the the Sun, it's been a very long time since the Sun was a newspaper. I mean, decades and decades. It is a political tool that Rupert Murdoch uses as a can opener with British politics. And I mean, that's, that's not even debatable now. I, th- I think the world, <laughs> the world knows that, the, the world sees that. But the problem with that is the journalism becomes a secondary function to what these papers do. And it needs to be absolutely the other way around. We need to keep proprietors and editors who will bend to their will out of journalism. Now, I mean, that's fundamental. That's how we've got where we are now. Peter, if we don't have Leveson 2, what will the consequences be for British public life? Well, I think already you're seeing that. We've just published a piece by Nafiz Ahmed on Byline Times about these eight bills, which take together form kind of enabling acts from the nationalities bill, the elections bill, the courts bill, the policing bill, you have a power grab by the executive, which is basically being enabled by the press who, you know, there were some people who turned their attention to it, but they're more focused, you know, like, you know, face masks or vaccine mandates. It is an unprecedented power grab, which could, by some estimates, disenfranchised and actually removed the citizenship of up to 15 million people. And so the Times is a great, great example of this. And Cathy did a great work there. I mean, you know, has brilliant columnists, does some brilliant investigations, but also election times, it makes clear who it supports. It also has run, I think, you know, Brian Cathcart's documented this quite clearly for us on Byline Times, a campaign of misreporting and really, you know, xenophobia around Islam and Muslims. Uh, You see it the same in other more tabloid papers around immigrants, this monstering of others, minorities particularly. They're wary of paying off cops, buying them bribes for stories, but instead they monster minorities and it's a constant distraction. And I think the two hopes that, even though they're trying to regulate it and it has this awful side, social media 
means that you do get to see stuff, some of it completely untrue, obviously, when it comes to kind of COVID scamademics, but some of it, you know, you get reporting online with forces the mainstream press and the mainstream media like the BBC to cover stuff because of online coverage. And and the stakes are this high. Why of all the industries, it's not the bankers they're saying, it's not the oil industry, steel, or the service industries, or even particularly, you know, brewers used to see a lot of, the Conservative Party's focus on the media. Because, you know, whether that's GB News, there are lords who invested in GB News, they'll give interviews to GB News, because they understand in the information age, information is not only oil, it's warfare. And so the best way, you don't actually need to sort of put tanks around the TV stations anymore. You co-opt the press and the media to your side and the public has no clue what's going on. So, yeah, I think it is the battleground of the model age, as important as we're seeing in the Ukraine, as important what's happening in the trenches of Donbass is what's happening in the courts of London on libel law, what's happening online with disinformation and bots and false accounts telling us lies about what's happening. The, you know, we're in a psychic warfare. You know, the battle is for hearts and minds as much as bodies and territory. And the press and Britain's parlous press is very, very weak and therefore at the centre of this battle. Peter Jukes. And you can see more from Peter every Friday night at 8 on Byline TV and read him in the Byline Times. Thanks also to Alistair Morgan and Cathy O'Donnell. Before we go, just a special word of thanks from me to all the people who help promote this podcast on social media. People like Elise Beerman and Dr Bob Hall. Every share on Facebook, every retweet really does make a difference. So cheers and thanks also to Harvey White who does so much of the production legwork behind the scenes. This podcast is funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at our equally brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, thank you. Thanks very much indeed for listening as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you next time.